there is a sense in which everyone who is called into the kingdom of God has been called there as a result of God wanting to put on display His glory so that no one would boast in themselves, but they'd give all the praise to God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 3 once again. And for those of you who are visiting with us, I feel like I need to explain to you that we do preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and there are times in the life of our church in which we get a little bit bogged down and focused on certain details of a text that I feel are pertinent and practical and things that we want to highlight. And so we are really in the midst of a mini-series as we look at the lives of the 12 apostles, and we're not taking one sermon for each one of these apostles. We're looking at a couple of the apostles together in each one of these sermons, uh, but nonetheless, these are more biographical sermons that look at the lives of the apostles and see what sort of principles that we can glean from their lives as saints that lived to the glory of Christ. We're considering the apostles, and in doing so, uh, there are some basic principles that we're trying to lay down. And I mentioned this last week. One of those principles is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There we learn that it is not only permissible, but it's actually commanded by the Apostle Paul that we imitate the lives of other saints insofar as their lives imitate Christ. It is okay, it is right, it is permissible, and we are commanded to have heroes of the faith that are found in Scripture and even outside of Scripture 
that are examples of godliness for us to follow. So that's one principle, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Another principle is laid down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a little longer text, verses 26 through 31, which says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is a sense in which everyone who is called into the kingdom of God has been called there as a result of God wanting to put on display His glory so that no one would boast in themselves, but they'd give all the praise to God. That is why He has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That is why He has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And when we study the lives of the apostles, we find that in one sense there's nothing extraordinary about them because they are rank-and-file sinners just like you and I. Uh, They had a depravity, according to them, apart from the grace of God, which would have sent them to hell. They had a depravity that, apart from the sovereign calling of God upon their lives, would have left them in a destiny that would have led to destruction. That is true regarding all of us as well. But by God's grace, for His glory, so that we would not boast in ourselves, but we would boast in God, He chose the foolish things of the world. He chose the weak things of the world. And I've been really frank about the fact that in studying their lives, we need to be very honest about their flaws. The reason I say that is because Scripture is very honest about their flaws. Scripture is honest about their flaws because we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their failures, perhaps more from their failures than even their successes. We're talking about principles that undergird the reason we're studying this. And there's another principle that comes to mind also found in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn there, 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul speaks here about the fact that Christians are to pursue holiness. And he lays down some principles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 9. Paul says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Who was the them? The them are Old Testament saints. That is the Israelites. They put God to the test and God punished them. Paul says, We aren't to do that. Verse 10, we're not to grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They grumbled. That was the one thing that marked them in their wilderness wanderings was murmuring against God. Paul says we aren't to follow that ungodly example. Verse 11, these things happened to them, their sins, their failures, and the punishment that followed, as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, in that context, Paul is speaking about Old Testament saints as an example of what not to do. We're looking at the lives of the apostles and we're saying in principle, we're we're doing the same thing. We're looking at how not to live in some measure. We're also looking at the positive things we can take from the lives of the apostles where we see in, in many places on the pages of Scripture that they were devoted men, loyal men, committed to God, men of great sacrifice. 
They were, after all, the beginning of God's new creation. Paul was clear about that in Ephesians chapter 2. The New Testament apostles are the foundation of the church. Included in that, the Old Testament prophets which came before them. They mark out God's new creation. We are living in a new epoch. We are living in the New Age movement. And I don't mean by that the pagan variety. I mean the biblical variety. The world always wants to take symbols of the Bible, like the rainbow, for instance, and destroy it, or take a good term like New Age and destroy it. We are Christians of the New Age. Christ has been crucified. He is resurrected. He has ascended. He is Lord over all. And He is making a new creation in which He is calling out of the world sinners. The apostles were the foundation of this new creation. He has indwelled His people with the Holy Spirit, and He intends that we will live out the intention for the first Adam who failed. We have as our identity the second Adam, and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are being conformed to the image of the second Adam, living out the way the first Adam should have lived, but we do this incrementally, progressively, by God's grace, for His glory, to borrow Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 1, so that no one will boast in themselves, but boast in God alone. It is an amazing thing to think that we are part of this new age, this new creation. We are being built on the foundation of the New Testament apostles and Old Testament prophets. Now, at the risk of sounding somewhat trite, I think a simple illustration from the world reveals how God uses what would otherwise be useless apart from Him. You've all heard the expression, one person's trash is another person's treasure. Well, the story goes of a researcher For a certain company who attempted to create a strong adhesive, that is a strong glue, but instead what he came up with was a weak adhesive that simply tacked one piece of paper to another and could restick without leaving a residue on a piece of paper. The company had no use for this weak adhesive until another chemist within the company saw a problem in his church choir. This man was a Christian. And the tiny slips of paper that he used to mark the pages of his hymnal inevitably fluttered to the floor, resulting in him losing his place constantly. But he remembered the useless, weak adhesive that his company created, and he made bookmarks that stuck to his hymnal pages without leaving a residue. Today, there isn't an office in America that doesn't use 3M post-it notes, because what was one person's trash was another's treasure or what we could say what appeared useless indeed was useless, was made into something useful. And I think in a simple way that even a child can understand, that's exactly what God does with us. He calls us to Himself. He saves us. He changes us. He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. He saves us through the Gospel. And God looks at us and He says, I'm going to show My power through their weakness so that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. And when we look at the lives of the apostles, we see that what is essentially useless became useful to God only by the grace of God. So far, as we've gone down this list, we've looked at the apostle Peter. We've called him the apostle of second chances. We've looked at his brother, the apostle Andrew, who we simply refer to as the apostle of contentment. We looked at the brothers James and John. We called them the apostles of sons of thunder, because that's what they were. And we've looked at Philip and Bartholomew. We looked at these men last week. We called them the apostles of patience. 
Today we want to look at two more. There are the two more in the list there in Mark chapter 3. Verse 18 mentions Matthew and Thomas. Matthew and Thomas. I want to call these men the apostles of loyalty. The apostles of loyalty. And I want to mention a brief background of both of them before we learn some principles about them. We'll begin with Matthew since he's mentioned first in Mark chapter 3. We know a little bit about Matthew because we looked at his calling in Mark chapter 2. His original name was Levi. He was the son of Alphaeus. And upon being called by our Lord, our Lord named him Matthew. Changed his name from Levi to Matthew. The, The word Matthew literally means gift of Jehovah. And I would say that one of Matthew's greatest gifts to God or to Jesus during his earthly life would have been his intense loyalty that came at great cost, which we shall see. But in short, to be a follower of Christ means you will be hated. It meant that for Matthew. And for Matthew, it meant sort of the fact that uh, he would have to have a more intense loyalty to Jesus because he was viewed as a traitor by his own people, the Jews, for becoming a tax collector. And then he was viewed as a double traitor for following Christ, not returning back to the Jews, but following this radical sect of Jesus' followers that was seen as enemies of his own people. His life and his devotion to Christ came at a great cost, and we will see that. In fact, one can make a reasonable argument. I think that when we're done this morning, maybe we'll say it, that out of all of the apostles, Matthew was the worst of sinners because he was part of the low-life riffraff of prostitutes and tax collectors of that society. He made his living on the backs of others by oppressing them, by getting money from them through taxation. The other apostle, who we want to talk about this morning, who was also marked by intense loyalty to Christ, was Thomas. We read in John chapter 11 that Thomas's Hebrew name was Didymus, and that name literally means twin. He must have had a twin, but Scripture never identifies who that twin is. So for our our sake, we're going to call Matthew Thomas's twin because they were twins in the sense that out of all of the apostles, they demonstrated a loyalty that at times went above and beyond even the likes of Peter, even the likes of James And John, they were twins of loyalty. We know Thomas, he acquired that nickname Doubting Thomas because of that incident after our Lord's resurrection when he displayed some doubt, demanding to see Jesus before he'd believe in the resurrection. We're all too familiar with that account. But my job today will be to convince you that Doubting Thomas is a rather unfair nickname. In fact, I would make the argument that throughout his walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, Thomas displayed the opposite of doubt. Thomas was fearless in the face of great danger. He demonstrated great faith, great loyalty to Christ, being willing to sacrifice it all, even his own life, when the other 11 disciples wanted to cut tail and run. Unfortunately, to make my case, I can only go to one passage, Because the only other passage that mentions Thomas, other than his listing among the twelve, is the one where he doubts the Lord. So we only have one passage on which to see his loyalty. We'll talk more on that later. 
But before we talk about these principles of loyalty, let me give you one Old Testament principle of loyalty that I want you to keep with you as we move on this discovery of what it means to be loyal to Christ. And that verse is Proverbs 3.3. Proverbs 3.3 offers to us what loyalty looks like in principle form. It says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's so important it bears repeating. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness, we could say loyalty, forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. As we look at the character of Matthew and Thomas, I think it provides an opportunity to see faithfulness or loyalty. Loyalty for God on display. Their lives, the lives of Matthew and Thomas, are like necklaces around our necks serving as reminders to us of the importance of loyalty as a Christian virtue. I will tell you this morning that there are not too many Christian virtues that are more fundamental to the Christian life than that of loyalty. And I would ask you, what is your level of loyalty to Christ? What is your level of devotion to the church of Christ? What is your loyalty to the theology of Christ, the truth of Christ? Do you live out your loyalty day to day? among your family, among your friends, your co-workers, those that you know in the world. Well, as we look at these two men, Matthew and Thomas, I think that we see two markers of Christian loyalty. Two markers of Christian loyalty. And I believe that if Christians can cultivate loyalty to our Lord and His people, the church will be stronger. I'll go a step beyond that. I think that if Christian relationships can be marked by loyalty, those relationships will be stronger. And that if loyalty is a virtue that we cultivate and nurture by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I think our witness to the world will be stronger. When the world sees our loyalty to Christ, when the world sees our loyalty to one another, even in the face of danger, hostility, persecution, that is a powerful force regarding our witness to the world. So we're talking about loyalty. Two markers of Christian loyalty from the lives of Matthew and Thomas. So here we go. The first marker of Christian loyalty is learned from the life of Matthew. Christian loyalty is marked, number one, by cost to your life. I can't say it any clearer. Cost to your life. I want you to turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew. And you're going to wonder why we're doing this. Because when you go back to Matthew chapter 10, you see another listing of the twelve apostles. You think uh, to yourself, why are we going from Mark's listing to Matthew's listing? Well, this is not a theology of phone books, but this is um, what we want to do here is look at this list and see how Matthew identifies himself. Verse 3, Matthew 10, verse 3. This is a listing of the apostles. The twelve disciples, as they're called in verse 1, who were given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. These are their names. We'll pick up in verse 3. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and, notice how Matthew identifies himself, Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. Now I point that out to you because none of the other gospel writers and their listing of the twelve apostles identifies Matthew as a tax collector. That's not really an identity that you would take pride in. Matthew identifies himself as a tax collector not because he misses his old life. I can promise you that. 
I think that Matthew identifies himself as a tax collector to remind himself simply of this, and that is the great cost that he incurred by following Christ. This cost obviously was financial, was it not? It would be an understatement to say that Matthew, before he knew Christ, was a man of money. He was a lover of money. So much so that he was willing to oppress others to get that money. He refers to himself by his old title, not because he missed his old life, oh no, but because this was a testament to the fact that in his mind, in his heart, it was worth the cost of following Christ. Worth it to give up all that he had in his former tax-collecting life. And every time he heard that title, Matthew the Tax Collector, he was reminded of the cost that it was worth to follow Christ. He was, we might call, a legal thief. In the first century Roman Empire, tax-collecting was essentially legal extortion. And I mentioned earlier that the Jews especially hated fellow Jewish tax collectors because they were effectively traitors working for the state that was oppressing them. In fact, the Talmud, which was a Christian document, even boldly said that it was a righteous thing if you lied to a tax collector. You were actually committing a righteous deed by lying to a tax collector and deceiving a tax collector. Tax collectors, as we noted before, and studying the call of Matthew from Mark chapter 2, were not allowed on temple grounds. They were not allowed in the synagogues. If they were a member of the synagogue, they would be summarily um, excommunicated if they became a tax collector. They weren't allowed to give testimony in the court of law because they were not considered credible since their livelihood was based on three things, manipulation, deception, and selfish gain. This was Matthew. And we find him, as we saw in Mark chapter 2, manning a tax booth. If you turn back to Mark chapter 2 and verse 14, we saw this several weeks ago, Mark chapter 2 and verse 14, Jesus is beside the sea. And verse 14 says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. In Luke's account of Matthew's calling, in Luke 5.28, it's a little more dramatic. Luke says that when Jesus called him, Luke 5.28, Matthew left everything behind, everything behind, and got up and began to follow him. Luke identifies this as a great cost. It cost him his lifestyle. It cost him his livelihood. It cost him his career. It cost him his opportunities. It cost him his money. No more money. No more wealth. He left it all. Great cost. You could make the argument, and indeed I would, that James and John gave up a lot to follow Christ, leaving their father's lucrative fishing business, but nothing compared to the Money you could make in tax collecting. Matthew gave up far more. Matthew was, by the way, not in charge of collecting the poll tax. There were two primary taxes in Jesus' day. There was the stated tax, which included the the poll tax. That was a, a tax on everyone living in the Roman Empire just because they were breathing. There was also what was called the ground tax, which was a tenth of one's grain, a fifth of one's wine and oil that they produced. 
Also a tax on any fish that they would catch. There was the income tax, which was a basically a 1% income tax on annual income. All of that was the stated tax. But then there was secondly what was referred to as the imported tax system, an exported tax system. These were taxes on imports and exports, and it was that sort of tax collector that Matthew was. He had a tax booth that he sat at on the shores of Galilee, as Mark indicates here, that ensured the collection of tariffs on any merchandise passing through the major international trade route, which passed through Capernaum. I told you that Capernaum was located on a major international trade route connecting Syria to Egypt. It was said that Judea is on the way to nowhere, but Galilee is on the way to everywhere because everyone passed through Galilee and in particular Capernaum in order to get to the various parts of the world. So inevitably, this was a major place of trade. Where does Matthew set up shop? He sets it up in the place he can earn the most money. He was a low-life, manipulating tax-gatherer. Here's the way it worked. The right to tax transported goods in the trade business was contracted out to local collectors. Now, it's likely that Matthew was a middleman, so he worked for one who had a bid to collect taxes in the area of Capernaum. So he had a boss, and his boss worked directly for Herod Antipas, and Matthew's profit came from a portion of the receipts. So his boss would have set the tax rate. He would have then given Matthew a tax booth from which Matthew would then jack up the tax rate even higher because Matthew had to make money from the taxes that he established. And so he would make extra money from higher tax rates. Matthew's boss set the tax rate. Whatever professional tax pressure Matthew could put on those passing by, we could call them his victims, would provide for him an immoral game, a handsome income for himself and his boss. So he was a smart guy. He was also an evil and immoral guy, ambitious to get money any way that he could. All tax collectors were professional extortionists. They sat at booths. Anyone walking by, they would tax. And by the way, they could tax anything. Anything. Random taxes could be applied to any goods, even the wheels on the carts that transported those goods. And it didn't have to be the same rate from this person to the next person. And if the person didn't have money to pay the tax, no problem. The tax collector could offer a loan with very high interest, thus gaining even more money. Tax collectors were thus professional criminals. That's what they were. They were trained extortionists. They were master manipulators. And they were hated by all, everyone in the Roman Empire, but especially If you were a Jewish tax collector, you were hated especially by the Jews who viewed you as a traitor. You were propping up your foreign oppressor, the Gentiles, by making money for them, working for them, for selfish gain to fill your own pockets. The Mishnah and the Talmud lump tax collectors together with thieves and murderers. And Scripture uses the language of tax collectors as those on the same level as prostitutes. Those who sell their body for money. Matthew sold his character and his integrity for money. He didn't care what people thought. He didn't care how he could get that money. He was going to get it. This is why most tax collectors were disowned by their families. 
They were ostracized to the edges of society, and the only people they could hang out with in their social life were the lowlifes, the riffraff, the prostitutes, the whores that walked the streets, because essentially that's what they were from a business standpoint. They had the same sort of character or lack thereof. You can't understand why Matthew would be miserable sitting at that tax booth. You can't understand, can't you, that when Jesus called him, the guilt of his livelihood overwhelmed him and the Holy Spirit moved in his heart in such a way that he just got up immediately and left it all and followed Christ. I think that he was familiar with Christ. I think that he had heard the sermons of Christ. I think the Holy Spirit was at work upon his heart for some time so that at the point of Jesus directly looking him in the eye and calling him, he was ready to go, leaving it all the great cost to follow Christ. Matthew's salvation calling stands in stark contrast to the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to give up his money to follow Christ. Matthew realized, to borrow Paul's words from Philippians 2, that whatever things were gained to him, those things he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He gave up so much. Loyalty to Christ involves intense sacrifice. That's what we learn from Matthew. We may not be former tax collectors, but we are called to the same type of unflinching devotion and loyalty to Christ, which raises several questions. Number one, how have you revealed your loyalty to Christ? What have you sacrificed for Christ recently or in your past? What should you sacrifice for Christ? And maybe a more penetrating question, what haven't you sacrificed for Christ? That latter question, I think, reveals your level of devotion because a lack of sacrifice means a lack of loyalty. Sacrifice for Christ and loyalty to to Christ cannot be separated. They go hand in hand. And here we see, maybe in an extreme way, but in a profound way, what it may cost you to follow Christ. It cost Matthew everything to follow Christ. All that money, all that success, everything that he ever knew to follow his Lord. Now, we'll return to talk about Matthew again, but let's talk about Thomas for a minute. How did Thomas show loyalty to Christ by counting the cost? Well, you're familiar with Thomas doubting the Lord, right? From John chapter 20. We'll get to that in a moment, but I want to show you why I think Thomas was one of the most loyal followers of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We've already seen the intense cost that Matthew incurred to follow Christ. Let's consider Thomas. John chapter 11. You're familiar with this incident, the death of Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the dead. We read here in verse 1, A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's just stop there and make a couple of observations. First of all, Jesus is close with this family. In fact, uh, it's possible that Jesus was living with them during this part of his ministry in Judea. 
This is not during the period of his ministry in Galilee when he lived with Peter. This is in Bethany, which was a city located in Judea. This is part of Jesus' Judean ministry. He had to have a place to live, and it seems conceivable to me that he lived with this family, very close with Mary and Martha. Bethany was only about two miles from Jerusalem. It was on the road leading to Jericho. But during Lazarus' death, Jesus was not near Bethany. We read that. Verse 3 says that word was sent, presumably by a messenger who would have had to travel at least one day to reach Jesus. And we read in verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus didn't mean by this that Lazarus wasn't going to die Because Lazarus does die. What he means by this statement is that his death would not be the final outcome when it was all said and done. God would be glorified because Jesus is predicting here that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And here's where we see the short-sighted faith and hard-heartedness of the apostles. This is not a glamorous passage for them. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, admittedly so, this appears a little odd. It doesn't make sense on the surface because in our finite minds, the loving thing to do would be to leave immediately, Jesus, drop everything you're doing, get to Lazarus uh, before he dies, heal him so he doesn't die, and therefore be glorified. Instead, Jesus waited for him to die. The reason for that was that he would get more glory by raising him from the dead. Not only would he get more glory, but more power would be on display, and to the point, according to the passage, it would cultivate a greater level of faith among the witnesses of those who witnessed this. This is not cold and heartless Jesus. This is Jesus wanting God to receive the most glory, His power to be on the fullest display, and for the faith in those He loves to be deepened even more. There is a good principle for us to stop and pause and ponder on for a moment. We don't always understand why God allows trials and pain and even death in our own lives. We cannot see the providence of God. Here we see the providence of God. We see the reason why Jesus allowed Him to die. But we oftentimes cannot see that in our own lives. And the disciples, let's be fair, they're not much different than us. After this, he said to the disciples, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. And notice this, verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? This is building upon an episode that occurred earlier where they tried to literally pick up stones to stone Jesus to death back in chapter 10. And verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus, and he had to escape. In John's gospel, that term Jews is a technical term that doesn't refer to the normal Jew. It refers specifically to the religious establishment. It was the religious establishment headquartered in Jerusalem, which was the capital city located in the province of Judea, where Bethany was located, that the disciples are saying, Jesus, you're crazy. You want to go back to Bethany, which is only two miles from Jerusalem in Judea, where the religious leaders are who just tried to stone you. Thanks, but no thanks. You say, well, they were fearful of their Lord's life. Yes, they were fearful of their Lord's life, but they were also fearful of their own lives. 
That's the bottom line. You would have done the same thing, and so would have I. But after saying these things, verse 11, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, once again, they're hard-headed. Jesus meant death when he was talking about sleep. Sleep is a metaphor for death. But here the disciples thought, or at least they expressed that they thought, he was just taking a nap. They reasoned that Lazarus was resting and he would recover. We don't have to go now. We don't have to risk our lives now. He'll get better. Maybe they said this in light of what they knew could be coming to them with the threat of the religious leaders. But here's where Thomas enters, and this is the point we're getting at. I promise I do have a point. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. That was their argument. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, listen, Lazarus has died. You guys aren't getting it. Let me just, let me drop the metaphors because it's just going in one ear and out the other. The man is dead and I'm going. Whether you're coming or not, and for your sake, verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there. This sounds a little heartless. Not really. Here's why. So that you may believe. You think this is a trial for Lazarus? This isn't a trial for Lazarus. This is a trial for you. This is a testing of your faith. I'm doing this so that you will believe in who I am, that God may be glorified in all things. This is for your good. The end of verse 15. Let us go to Him. Complete silence. Complete silence. Until verse 16. So Thomas, where's he been? He's not mentioned anywhere. Anywhere in the New Testament except here in the listing of the twelve apostles and then the time that he doubted the Lord. But here he comes. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I love this. This is Thomas, who you never hear about, never speaks a word, don't know really anything about. This is the man who doubts the Lord later, but here he says, let's go. If we're we're going to die, let's die together. If Jesus is going to die, let's die with him. You know what I think? This is not doubting Thomas. This is devoted Thomas among the doubting eleven. This is intense loyalty and devotion. Perhaps more extreme than we have seen from any of the apostles up to this point. And this is toward the end of our Lord's ministry. It's clear, isn't it, that Thomas counted the cost to his own life? He essentially said, my life doesn't matter. If I can't be by my Lord's side, my life doesn't matter. And that is the same posture, beloved, we should take. If I can't live for my Lord, life's not worth living. If I can't obey my Lord, life is not worth living. If I can't honor my Lord, then what am I doing on this earth? If I can't sacrifice for my Lord, then what am I doing? Everything is wrapped up in Thomas's mind of being with his Lord, honoring his Lord, and even dying with his Lord, if that's what it takes 
willing to cost it all. That's intense loyalty, no matter the cost. And I think that puts John 20 in perspective. Now, I'm not going to take the easy road out. That's face doubting Thomas head on. Turn with me to John chapter 20. I think John 11 puts John 20 in perspective. John chapter 20, we're fast forwarding a bit. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has resurrected. And now Jesus is appearing to the disciples. Verse 19. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, here's Thomas again, verse 24. Now Thomas, notice it says one of the twelve. That indicates the fact that in case you forgot who he was or you don't know who he is, he's one of the twelve. Called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples did the logical thing. They told him, verse 25, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I'll never believe. This is a man devastated, depressed, despondent, paralyzed, and doubt and disbelief. His Lord's life had just been taken. He's grieving. He's depressed. Depression that is so deep that he's skeptical. I will not believe until I see it. Now before you give too much credit to the other disciples, let me remind you of a text. You don't have to turn there, but it's found in Mark's Gospel. That... um, When Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, we read that she went and told those who had been with him. They mourned and wept, and when they heard that he was alive and had been sent by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, two of the disciples, and they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. All of the apostles had moments of doubt. Thomas is a man. He's got feet of clay. Where he saw his intense loyalty above all the others who were unwilling to die, perhaps Thomas's doubt wasn't deeper than the other ten, Judas being gone by this point, but maybe his sorrow was just deeper, the death of his Lord. Because we do see his faith back in John 20, Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Thomas is going to get a second chance. Verse 27, Then he looked at Thomas and said, Put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There is no scolding of Thomas here. There is no singling of Thomas here. He, he did what all the other apostles did. They had moments of doubt. He had his moment of doubt. 
this is not doubting Thomas. This is loyal Thomas, devoted Thomas, because Thomas answers verse 28, My Lord and my God. That is an affirmation of the deity of Christ. How many of the apostles affirmed that? His doubt was a moment in the midst of his depression and his grief. This is not doubting Thomas. This is faithful, intense, loyal, devoted Thomas. Yes, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, a blessing. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Tradition says that Thomas continued in his devotion to the Lord. After our Lord's ascension, he carried the gospel all the way to India and started several churches there. By the way, he was martyred. The way he was martyred was somewhat interesting. He was ran through with a spear. One wonders if he thought of that spear that ran through his Lord's side, the same wounds of which he touched and believed. The spear, as a reminder of our Lord's loyalty to him and dying for him upon the cross, And therefore, how could he not be loyal to his Lord even unto death if it meant being ran through with a spear for the sake of Christ? Intense loyalty and devotion. Matthew and Thomas, these are the twins of loyalty. Both willing to count the costs, they considered it worth it to follow Christ, to be devoted to Him. Are we willing to be loyal in our devotion to Christ? Loyal in our time, How much time do we spend with our Lord in the reading of the Word of God in prayer? How much time do we spend studying His truths? That's the way we fellowship with our Lord. How much time do we pray to Him and praise Him and commune with Him? How much time do we spend cultivating relationships within our family, discipling our children, our wives, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Where is our loyalty in the category of time? Where is our loyalty in the category of our talent? The question so often is not, what are you willing to do for Christ, but what are you not willing to do? Because the answer to the latter question is probably what you ought to think about doing with your time and with your talent. Are you willing to be loyal to Christ not only in your time and your talent, but also your treasures? Matthew certainly was. He gave up all his worldly treasures to follow Christ. And God may not require from you to give up all of your wealth, but He does require intense devotion and loyalty that comes not just in the form of time and talent, but also treasure from our bank accounts, from our hard-earned money for the kingdom of God. We're to give all of it up, all of it up for Christ. Because being a follower of Christ comes with intense devotion. But I'm convinced there's more than sheer devotion to Christ. It is at the heart of what it means to be loyal to Christ. Because loyalty to Christ involves not only a cost to your life, but secondly, here's my second point, a concern for the lost. A concern for the lost. We have talked about all of these apostles. We've mentioned their martyrdom. They all died in different ways. And have you noticed that when they die, they're not around one another? They all dispersed. 
They all scattered. One's in India, another's in Russia, another is in Rome. Where are they? They're not with one another. They're among unbelievers. They're among the lost. They're planting churches. They're proclaiming the gospel at their own peril and the cost of their own lives. Part of what it means to be loyal to Christ means that you count the cost to your own life. But the second part of that, the other side of the coin of that, is that you have a concern for the lost. Matthew and Thomas both demonstrated this. We saw this in the life of Andrew. Andrew brought his brother Peter to Christ. He brought the little lad with loaves and fishes to Christ. We saw that the Greeks sought out Philip to see Christ. Sir, we would see Jesus. But I think that Matthew, arguably more than all of the other apostles, had a clear love and concern for the lost. I want you to turn back with me to Mark chapter 2. Let's go back to his calling just for a moment and remind you of what he did immediately after being called by our Lord. Verse 14 of Mark chapter 2, Jesus told Matthew, follow me. He arose and followed him. Verse 15 says, and as he reclined at table in his house, that is Matthew's house, notice this, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Well, that's interesting. First thing that Matthew does is he says, let's have a banquet. I'm going to invite the worst possible sinners I can. We're going to have dinner with them. And Jesus is going to come. Well, that sounds like a noble thing to do. Well, notice verse 16. The scribes and Pharisees, when they saw it, they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This was, in their minds, as we saw when we looked at this passage, a violation of ritual purity. There were a total of 613 commandments that the religious establishment of Israel had come up with, 248 positive injunctions, 365 negative ones, laws surrounding the laws of God, things not to do to avoid not doing the things that the actual Bible said not to do, sheer legalism. One of them was this, you cannot eat with prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. Not only that, but if you were a Pharisee, you weren't even allowed to dine at the house of another person who wasn't a Pharisee out of fear that the food you ate was not tithed. That wasn't part of the Bible. That was part of the 613 commandments flowing from the Hasidim, the faithful who were the religious ancestors of the Pharisees. The basis of the scribes and Pharisees' objection to what Jesus did was a matter of ritual purity and convoluted legalistic thinking. Jesus, along with Matthew, was eating the wrong food in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were defiling themselves. Jesus offers no apology, does He? When Jesus heard it, verse 17, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you didn't pick up on that, that sarcasm, those who are well, meaning, I know you Pharisees are religiously healthy, 
You don't have a need for a physician. You're righteous in your own eyes. But I'm not eating with you because I didn't come for you. I came for those sick with their sin, those who recognize they are sinners and are in need of a Savior. I came not to call, and here is the rebuke, the righteous, which is you who think you're righteous because you're self-righteous. I came to call sinners. That was a stinging rebuke. Also revealing the fact that not only was Matthew not doing anything wrong, but Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong. Jesus, in effect, implicitly speaking, implicitly speaking, was endorsing in principle what Matthew was doing. What is Matthew doing? Matthew has a love and a concern for the lost. This is Matthew going out to all of those he has ever rubbed shoulders with in the unbelieving world, and he's trying to put them before Jesus. You remember Jesus told another tax collector, Zacchaeus, Come down from that sycamore tree. Luke 19.5, Jesus says, Because I must stay at your house today. That is interesting. I must stay at your house. This is a matter of necessity. In Matthew's mind, this is a matter of necessity. There's unbelievers that I know. There's those who are going to enter a Christless eternity. And I will do all that I can to bring them before the Lord Jesus. A concern for the lost. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, such is the business of a doctor, or he doesn't have a business. A doctor hangs out with sick people. I will go to those who are sick in order to offer the gospel balm of healing. Of course, the Pharisees, they didn't see this. And if you flip over to Matthew's account of this in Matthew 9.13, Matthew adds a little color to the drama. Mark is always brief, but Matthew adds a little color here. After Jesus rebukes them, Matthew 9, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew adds that Jesus quotes from Hosea 6, 6, go and learn what this means. In other words, scribes and Pharisees, why don't you go read your Bible for a change? Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and read your Bible. When you do, when you open the scroll to Hosea 6.6, you'll find that all the sacrifices in the world, all the religious and ritualistic things that you do to look righteous and to prop yourself up in your self-righteousness mean absolutely nothing to me. What I desire is mercy. That's a true person of God. Someone who has mercy. You have no mercy on these sinners. Matthew does. Matthew is a true follower of me. All true followers of Christ have mercy and concern and love for the lost. What reveals your loyalty to Christ? Let me ask you a question. How much time do you spend with lost people? How much time do you witness to them? How much time do you build relationships with them? Setting an example of godliness before them. You have a responsibility to do that. There is no such thing as Escaping from the world like the Pharisees did, that's legalism. God has designed His kingdom to be such that the church has an impact upon the culture and the world. We're to be a mouthpiece of the gospel. We're to set forth the love of Christ. We're to love sinners created in the image of God because they bear His image. They've marred that image. We want to bring them to Christ, don't we? So they can be forgiven. 
Let me close with three little lessons that can be drawn from this practically. Three little lessons that can be drawn from this practically in terms of a concern for the lost. Number one, I'm going to put these all in the negative. There is no place for isolation in regard to our personal relationships. There's no place for isolation in regard to our personal relationships. What I mean by that, Christians are not to be of the world, but we are in the world. We're not to be marked by isolation from sinners, nor are we to be marked by assimilation with sinners, but we are to be on mission for sinners. We can't do that if we don't know sinners. We should desire the lost to come to Christ, not isolate ourselves, not use the excuse of ministry, maybe ministry to others in the church, as an excuse not to know the lost. We must bring the lost to Christ. Finding creative ways to rub shoulders with the lost, but the church has a duty to engage the culture, to speak the truth, to be willing to cost even our relationships with those we're trying to win to Christ because we're trying to win them to Christ. C.T. Studd, the former professional cricket player turned preacher, said this, Some want to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That demonstrates a concern for the lost. I've shared this before, but when Oliver Cromwell ruled England, there was a national monetary crisis. They ran out of silver and they could not mint the coins. So in response, Cromwell sent troops to the cathedral to look for silver. And when it was reported that there wasn't any silver except for what was found in the statues of the saints, Cromwell humorously said, melt down those saints and get them back into circulation. God wants us melted down from our pious stance, our isolation. He wants us circulated in the world. In your job, you are to be a testimony for Christ. Everyone ought to know you are a Christian. And everyone ought to know your convictions. And you ought to love them and seek to bring those unbelievers to Christ. There's no place for isolation in regard to our personal relationships if we're going to have concern for the lost. Secondly, there's no place for deviation in regard to our evangelistic duties. Evangelism is not something just for the preacher or the pastor or for an elder or a deacon. We have a duty to be a witness for Christ everywhere we go. You say, well, I don't want to be influenced by the world. I've I got to be careful. I've got to be careful uh, who I hang around. I might deviate. Well, you know, there is credence to that line of thinking. In other words, it's understandable. Paul said, we are as Christians to separate from believers who are, for example, sexually immoral. Someone's excommunicated from the church or not to associate with them, fellowship with them, dine with them. But then he says something interesting. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then he gives this caveat, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying don't, dis, don't disassociate from the sexual immoral of the world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. Why? Well, since then, you would need to go out of the world. You can't do that. You're called to be on mission to the most Christless people you know. Trusting that when you don't deviate from that responsibility, God will use you as an effective witness. 
There's no place for isolation in our personal relationships. There's no place for deviation in regard to our evangelistic duty. There's no place for assumption in regard to our spiritual state. What is that rebuke that Jesus gave to the religious leaders? He quoted Hosea 6, 6, right? If you would have read the Bible, you would have seen, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy for the lost is a mark of a true believer. Love for the lost is a mark of a true believer. Why is that? Well, because that is the mark of Christ. That is a mark of Matthew, an apostle of Christ. These two apostles, Matthew and Thomas, I think serve as a helpful reminder of what loyalty to Christ looks like. My prayer is that God's grace would increase our devotion to Him so that we would be vessels worn out in our service to Him, fully devoted, fully devoted in every category of our lives. Why? Not so that we can boast, not so that we can point to ourselves, but to borrow the language of Paul from 1 Corinthians 1, so that we alone will boast in the Lord. The world will look at us and they will say, how in the world, how in the world could God use someone like that effectively? We don't know, but we know this, the glory goes to the Lord alone. That's why He uses people like us. We praise Him for that. We become living sacrifices for Him, not for our own glory, but for His glory. That frees us to be intensely loyal to Christ. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for Him. He sees all. He knows all. He blesses loyalty and faithfulness. Bind steadfast love and faithfulness around your necks as a reminder of what God has called us to in this brief life. Let us pray. Father, indeed we do give You the praise for allowing us the opportunity to study the lives of these apostles. Lord, today we focused on Matthew and Thomas, and Lord, we have seen from their loyalty what it means to sacrifice our lives for You, what it will cost us. It may cost us our life. It certainly may cost us our livelihood. It will cost us, in some measure, we're called to pick up our cross and bear it. Our loyalty to You will also be evidenced in our concern for the lost, our love for the lost, our prayers for the salvation of the lost, our proactiveness in engaging this culture with the Gospel in every aspect, in every category. Help us, Lord. We all have a tendency to be fearful, to want to isolate ourselves from the world, to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves, but we have a duty. As we sang this morning, we are soldiers in Your army. Who is on the Lord's side? Those on the Lord's side are those who charge the enemy with the gospel. Help us, Lord. Give us strength where we are weak. We know that you have chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So, Lord, we trust in you to do this even in our lives. Lord, we also pray for those that might be here that don't know Christ. Lord, help them to recognize Christ's loyalty for sinners by dying for them at Calvary. And Father, help them to see that they need forgiven. They need washed by the gospel. We pray that you would call your sheep to yourself. Thank you for this time of worship. Bless us, Lord, now as we sing a hymn of response. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.